Today we're, uh, we're going to look at a um, text in the scriptures that um, has become bedrock, the bedrock of, of, of Crossroads Bible Church. Uh, this this passage, passage has been hugely instrumental in shaping the vision and mission of our church. Um, I remember when Crossroads was uh, kind of, we were in our infant stage as a church plant, and we were starting to get our legs and, and learning how to walk. Um, you know, we're not clever enough to like do these kind of things. This is when you know there's just a good shepherd who's, who's taking good care of you and shepherding you. Um, and he shepherded us into this uh, series where we started to look at the storyline of the Bible uh, through the lens of the Bible being a tale of two cities. Um, and the two cities are Jerusalem, the city of God, and Babylon, uh, the city of man, and, um, and how these threads uh, work together. And so today, we're going to immerse ourselves uh, in this thread. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 29. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. Let's stand for the reading of Jeremiah 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's some more history to this whole event. This is after King Jehoiakim, the Israel king, and queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, the artisans, the Daniels, the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes, uh, all those who had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter of Elisah, son of Shaphan, to, to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And these are the words, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for Babylon, because if Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams that uh, dreams you encourage their heart to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I, the Lord, have not sent them. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you out of this place. I think many of us are familiar with this verse. It's a favorite graduation text. Yep. <laughs> for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you'll call on me and you'll come and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you out of captivity. This is God's word. Be seated. Uh, so we're in this uh, book of Jeremiah uh, for six weeks, and we're learning that Jeremiah uh, is this prophet that God raises up during a very significant uh, period of the biblical story. Uh, it's, it's that period when God's people are uprooted from the land of promise and when they're exiled uh, to a foreign land called Babylon. And uh, what God is doing to this book of Jeremiah, he's doing it to the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, he's pastoring uh, a, a people uh, who he loves so much. He's pastoring them through this traumatic ordeal. Uh, first, God through Jeremiah warns them of exile. Then he explains to them why it happens. And today we're gonna see the whole purpose behind it. Before we look at all that, though, I wanna do our, our best that we can do right now to try to get into the shoes of God's people. I want us to feel the horror of this, of being exiled. So God's people are conquered by, by this, this superpower called Babylon. And let's, let's just already be honest right now, that's hard for us to imagine because we are a superpower. We may be the world superpower right now. We are Babylon, <laughs> okay? Uh, but but uh, they're conquered. Not only are they conquered, but then many of them are taken as captives to a foreign land. So they lose everything. Can you imagine losing everything? Can you, can you try to get in their shoes and, and, and feel like it would be like to be uprooted from your own land where you've lived, your, your parents and your grandparents have possibly lived and, and, and losing all the things that you own, all of your possessions, life as you know it, all the, the, the life and the memories that are connected to that place. In fact, when I still travel to the Middle East, uh, they, they speak frequently about their holy trinity, which, which goes all the way back even uh, to this part of the world that we're looking at right now, or this to the ancient world. Um, the, the trinity that they speak of, God, family, and land. And there's, these three uh, realities are so interwoven together where if you, if, if you take one out, if, if, if one crumbles, they all crumble. I mean, this is what, uh, to this day, uh, for a Middle Easterner, uh, what shapes their identity, what gives them meaning, what gives them purpose. It's, it's, it's this trinity of God and family land. And, and, and these three things, they're, they're inseparable. They're, they're intertwined together. And so uh, you lose the land. This is why the land is such a big deal to this day in the Middle East. You lose everything. You lose your identity, you lose your purpose, you lose your story, you lose your relationship with God, you lose your sense of who you are. And then when you also add to this that for Israel to lose their land, they're not only just losing a piece of real estate, but, but this is land that's called promised land. And the reason why it's called promised land is because uh, God literally uh, chose this land. In fact, in Ezekiel uh, 20, verse six, 
uh, it, it says, God says, I, I searched the whole world and then I found the most beautiful of lands and I, I gave that land to you, Israel. And so the land is, is, is chosen by God and the people are chosen by God and the people are put on the land as God's people uh, to be in God's place with this massive call in their life to be a light to the nations, and so even their identity of who they are and their calling and, and all of their mission, like it's, it's all shattered. It's done. The story's done. Our purpose is done. Our identity, we have none. This is why I have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations to deal with the lament of what God's people are feeling in this place. That's why we have Psalm 137, uh, where the person writing this psalm says, our captors asked us uh, on the shores of, of of, of the river of Babylon to sing us songs. Sing your songs. Sing your, sing your songs of joy and happiness. Don't be so downcast and, and sad. And, and the psalmist can only say, I, there is no song to sing. And, and, and you can just feel uh, the lament. Have you been there? Has your life been there? I love the definition of exile that we were given the first week um, that comes from Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says the essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be. We are separated from home. We are not permitted to reside in a place where we comprehend and appreciate our surroundings. Exile is this experience of dislocation. And I have to believe in a room this size that many of you this morning are, are actually in this place or, or have experiences, memories of, of being in this place where, where your life is in exile, where there's this longing for a past life. Uh, maybe it's just deep, deep disappointment with your present life. Uh, maybe you sit here and, and, and you think about what, what your dream once was of what your life would be, what your life could be, and that whole dream today is just utterly shattered. You sit here just kind of hopeless. You look at the trajectory of your life. You look at the story of your life, and, and, and it's gone to places that you never could have imagined it to have gone to. It's not, it's not what you thought. And maybe you sit here today because of that where your identity, you don't even have a sense of who you are. You don't know who you are, your, your sense of purpose and, 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 and meaning to, to why you are here in this world. And maybe it even goes so deep today where your relationship with God is shattered. It's just shattered. Now, I'll say this. This, this is, when we get in these places, because we'll, we'll all be there. This is, this is where self-pity can set in, where we start saying, why me? Or why God? And I, I, I can just hear Israel in this place. I, I can hear them saying things like, this is unfair. Uh, I, the, the food here is awful. The weather is miserably hot. The schools are horrible. The lifestyle is immoral. The politics are, are oppressive. Why me? Why God? Why this situation? 
See, and this is where false prophets uh, can have their heyday because false prophets actually love self-pity. Because when they're self-pity and lots of it, now they can sell their books, they can hold office, they can do their talk shows, create their podcasts, they can get, get all their likes by simply telling people what people want to hear. And so you have that going on in, in, in our text. If you read the previous chapters especially, they're pretty much saying, you know what, Israel? It's all okay. It's all going to be okay. You guys are okay, and God is going to make it all okay. And see, this is exactly what self-pity does. It, it brings us to a place of deception where we actually start listening to the voices that we want to hear, and we tune out the voices that we need to hear. This is why we need true prophets, which is why we're in the book of Jeremiah. Because true prophets are going to just say it like it is. And their word is not their word, but their word is actually God's word. And oftentimes, God's word is the hard word. And it's the hard word oftentimes that hurts, but the hard word is the healing word. I know this. I've lived enough life. It starts with my parents, coaches, teachers, mentors, brothers, elders, uh, the people that have impacted my life the most are not the people that told me what I wanted to hear, but they're people that told me what I needed to hear. And oftentimes in that moment, it really hurt. But if I had the guts to listen to it and the humility, it led to repentance. And the repentance then led to healing. If you read the prophets, like, Let's just start with this question, is Israel okay? <laughs> well, if you go to Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah right out of the gate says, Israel, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, you're sick. You're not okay. And last week we heard too through Jeremiah how Jeremiah is saying how the heart is, is desperately sick and, and who can understand it and, and, and ends with, heal me, oh God. There, there is this need for healing. In other words, not okay. And the prophets also let us know that God is not okay with Israel not being okay, which is why God allows Israel to be exiled. In fact, it's not even just that God allows. God actually orchestrates it. God is the one who exiles Israel. In fact, that too is all over Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's right in our text today. If you look at verse 4, where it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so then once you can accept that, that the God is the one that didn't just allow this but caused it, that then should probably beg the obvious question of why? Why, God? Like, why would you do this? And, and, and the prophets also uh, answer uh, this question, um, and they tell us that Israel, this is why God did this. You failed in two very important relationships. First, your marriage to God. 
We learned last week, Jeremiah 2, God says to Israel, Israel, do you remember the marriage? <laughs> Do you remember our honeymoon in the desert? I mean, what happened to us? Why did you forsake me, the spring of Maim Kaim, of living water? Why did you settle for that, that putrid, stale cistern water when you could have drunk of me and put your roots deep into me? Instead, the roots of your heart went into yourself. The second uh, failed relationship was Israel's failed relationship with the world. They pretty much refused to partner with God uh, to be a light to the nations. And we see this really vividly in the book of Jonah. If you, if you read Jonah, um, what you have here is this prophet of God who is in this place of self-pity. He's just wallowing in it. And he's more concerned about his own personal comfort than he is for the nation's. And Jonah is, is a microcosm of the whole nation of Israel. And so what does God do? God uproots, he digs up his garden. He just digs it up and he exiles his people to Babylon. And so when we come to our text today, here are God's people. They're a thousand miles from home. They're living in this strange land among exiles from all over the world, Persians, Asians, Africans. And they're asking this question like, okay, what are we to do now? I mean, here we are. We, we, we're in this wicked place and, 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 and strange people, strange, like what, 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 what are we to do here? How are we to relate to, to, to Babylon and all, all the strangeness around us? And then the Babylonians too, this superpower, I mean, they had their own agenda. Uh, I mean, they have a pretty significant challenge on their hands as a world superpower who've conquered all these different people, groups, and cultures. Uh, they have the challenge of what, what do you do with, with all these people that you've conquered? And they probably learned from history that you can't push them down or they're gonna rise up. You can't just push them out or to the margins or they're going to uh, get mad and come at you. So they actually developed this, what I think is a very ingenious idea. Um, they thought the best way to annihilate a people group is actually by assimilating that people group into their culture, into their religion, their way of life, so that in so doing, you will destroy them by just making them just like you. And so their whole strategy, the Babylonians, is they, they, they brought them in. They brought them right in the heart, Babylon. And they took their best, they took their most prominent, they, they uh, gave them their, their best education, the best jobs, their best food, with this idea that over time, give it one or two generations, where they are immersed in our culture, our way of life, worshiping our gods, doing our forms of entertainment, they'll become just like us. And in so doing, we just annihilated them. In fact, this is uh, what we see going on in the book of Daniel. Uh, the Daniels, the Shadrachs, the Meshachs, the Abednegoes, um, they're given new names, they're given the best education. Uh, they're given high rank. They're even uh, eating food from the king's table. 
Now, if you, if, if you look at the chapters that are leading up to the text that we read today, you uh, see that the prophets, these false prophets, are, are, are uh, becoming aware of what Babylon is going for. So they then step into this and give God's people this false hope by saying things like, in two years, God is actually going to destroy this wicked city. So you guys, let's all stay way, way, way outside of it. Let's do life in our own tribe. Let's play it safe on the outskirts and let's not participate in Babylon in any way. Again, let's try to get in their shoes. How, how would you respond? How, how would we respond if, if we were under this dominant force, this threatening culture? Because we are. We live in Babylon. How do we respond to it? As, as Christians, as, as a church, and I think the two biggest temptations right now facing the church, um, first is isolation, uh, that, that we just kind of retreat from the world, we escape the world, we, we circle the wagons, we, we, we create our fortresses to do everything we can to keep a bad world out. It's a strong temptation. The other temptation is accommodation is when we just blend in and, and become like the culture around us. And this is a temptation because, let's be honest, it's, it's hard to be different. And today, it's, 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 it's this feeling of, of, it's painfully hard to be different. And it's much easier than to just become just like the world around us and to assimilate into it. And see, Jeremiah, this is the situation that he is stepping in. Uh, and the first thing I want you to show you to see is verse eight, where he says, or yeah, he says, don't listen to those other prophets. <laughs> They're just trying to deceive you. And then you come to. <laughs> Verse four, because what's very important here is this is not just Jeremiah versus the other prophets, his opinion versus their opinion. Jeremiah, as we learned from chapter one, is literally the mouthpiece of God. And so this instruction is not Jeremiah's instruction. This instruction is thus saith the Lord. Here are the Lord's marching orders. Look at verse four. This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase. It, doesn't, it does not in the original say increase in number, although that's implied, but it says increase, do not decrease. Basically, if you know anything about when God creates Adam and Eve in this world and he places them in the garden and then he gives them what we call the creation mandate, 
what I just read hearkens us right back to that creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, which is to be fruitful and to, to multiply. It's, it, it, it's this call uh, to Adam and Eve and, and, and then to God's people, Israel, we're in the, in the promised land, and now God is giving them the same garden mandate while they're exiles in Israel, is I want you to know who you are, that you belong to me, that you wear my name, that I've called you to be holy as I am holy, And I want you to live, to bring my glory. Don't shrink back in fear, but to bring my glory and my name to a world that I love. Increase. Don't become less. Be more. Be, be all that I made you to be. And then in verse five, he says, and I want you to settle there. Don't, don't live on the outskirts. Don't just go where it's safe. Don't live in the suburbs. Uh, do life in Babylon. Eat their food, buy and sell, participate in the economy, the real estate. Again, take all that you are, all that I've made you to be, all that I've called you to be, and move that all the way in to Babylon. And then he ends with the clincher in verse seven. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for Babylon, because if Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. And behind the, the, the word prosperity, where it says seek the peace and prosperity, uh, is the Hebrew word shalom. In fact, it's not just shalom. That's why it's for peace and prosperity. It's, it's, pray, it's, it's, it's seek the shalom, shalom of Babylon. And then when it says pray to the Lord for the shalom, the prosperity, it's, it's not just shalom again, it's shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom is used three times in this verse. And this doubling of, of shalom, which we uh, interpret peace, even though it's far more than peace, it's harmony, wholeness, completeness, flourishing, all of that. When you double this word, uh, shalom, it's not just peace, it's peace, peace. It is perfect Peace, perfect peace, shalom, shalom is Eden peace. It's heaven peace. It's the kingdom of heaven. And God is asking them to be that, to pray that into a city that just took everything from them. And here's where we see that the Bible is a tale of two cities because here they are. Look at verse one. Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We have Babylon and Jerusalem. 
And what you need to know is that Babylon and Jerusalem um, in the Bible are two theologically charged terms. Uh, I, I don't want to take away the fact that, yes, they are actual places, but in the Bible, um, Jerusalem and Babylon also represent the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness and the, and the cosmic struggle that, that has been going on from the beginning of time between these two kingdoms between the city of God, Jerusalem, and the city of man, Babylon. And that's why you can look at the Bible and you can see this whole thread that runs through it, um, this thread of the city of God, Jerusalem, and the city of man, Babylon. And Babylon, by the way, um, that's, that's an English word. Uh, the Hebrew word behind uh, Babylon, it's always Babel. Uh, and so um, right here, I, I read Babylon, but in their text, it's Babel. And uh, one of the first stories that we have in our Bible is, is of Babel. It's when the human race in Babel unifies uh, itself around building this tower that reaches a name for itself. And what, is, what does this tower represent? This, this tower uh, represents uh, humanity's attempt to unify itself, to be God, to replace God, to make a name for itself, literally. That's how the text reads. And so if you want to know what this tower they're building is, it's, it's that Arar tree last week. It's that tree that looks so good on the outside, but has no roots. It's just a bush that blows away. Uh, this tower, the way, the way you could look at it in the most simplistic way is it's a tower to human pride. And this is why at the end of the Bible, uh, when, when Revelation describes Babylon or, or Babel, uh, it describes Babel as this pleasure-seeking city that's marked by money, sex, and power because this, at the core of, of Babylon, is what it is. It's this world system where money, sex, and power are king. And this is why we know this city very well. I mean, look at our cities today. They scream Babel. Babel's where uh, people go to, to make a name for themselves, to prove themselves, to grab power, to climb the ladder, to make it to the top. Babel is the place where it's all about you, where you save yourself, where you get to create yourself, you get to define yourself, you promote yourself, market yourself, so you can exalt yourself. Babel is the place where you go and you take, where you use people, you exploit people to get what you want. Uh, in Babel, the whole so social order is based on social Darwinism, which is survival of the fittest and the strongest, the prettiest, the wealthiest. We know Babel. We live in Babel. And this is why so many people, too, why, why, why they flee the city, and it's, it's, it's why the church historically has avoided the city uh, some of us are even disgusted with, with cities, and it's why so many people settle in, in the suburbs or in the country. And it, it's almost like for Christians, too, we forget that there's a whole other city, that there's the city of God, Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem literally means place of shalom. And as I just said, uh, shalom is that Hebrew word that means completeness and wholeness. It means rest and harmony, prosperity, blessing, flourishing. Shalom is Eden. Shalom is the kingdom of heaven. 
And this is why in the biblical story, God brings his people to the center of the world and he plants Jerusalem in the center of this people, in the center of the world as a new Eden to be shalom, to bring shalom to the chaos of the world that he loves. The problem for so many Christians today that even when we start talking about kingdom of God, kingdom of man, I'm sorry, city of God, city of man, um, Jerusalem, Babylon, uh, we think of the city of man as the place where we live now and the city of God is the place that we go when we die. And so then Christians develop this mindset and this attitude that, okay, I belong to the city of man now, but I just wait my time, bide my time here on earth until I die and I go to the city of God. Except Jesus in the whole Bible, but especially Jesus, confronts this massively. In the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does his introduction and then he gives his main point. And his main point of this sermon is he says, you disciples are a city on a hill that must not be hidden. And this is Jesus' vision for the church, which was God's vision for, for, for his people in the Old Testament is that we are this city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, right now. In this world, for this world. And that's why Crossroads, why this is such an instrumental text to this church, why it's bedrock to us, because this is our mission. It's that we are, we are called of God by Jesus to be this alternate city to Grand Rapids, that God is uh, wanting us to, to, to move in and, and uh, to, to be distinctive and to be set apart and to be holy as he is holy um, in the same way that light stands out in darkness. And, 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 and to, but to move all of that in and to love Babylon, to pray for Babylon, uh, to move in as new creations so we can bring new creation to our city. This is why God's people are in Babylon. If you want to know why, the exile's uh, less about punishment and it's, it's more of a wake-up call for God's people. Israel, you forgot who you are. You forgot why you are here. You forgot your mission. You forgot me. So God takes Jerusalem plants it right in Babel with the mission, now go be my city, the new Jerusalem, to this city. And I know some of you right now are in exile. You're displaced, you're dislocated, you're discouraged. Maybe some of you are even depressed. You can wallow in, in, in self-pity, uh, just like much of our entitled culture is doing today. I mean, all you have to do is look around, and our culture right now is in full-blown self-absorption, people just crying about 
their personal rights and falling deeper and deeper into this poor me. This too is Babylon. This is the way of Babylon. This is what Babylon feeds off. Um, Or you can see that God has massive, massive plans for exile. Maybe to wake you up, to wake us up from this thing that we call normal life today, normal life of Netflix and social media and pop culture and NFL drafts and the latest fashion and upscaling, making money, getting nicer things, celebrity gossip, and let me also say all the political poop. You're lucky I said poop. I... Don't bother with the email. I won't say it again. (laughs) Yes, our culture has become Israel, but we have. We can sit here and be critical of our culture, but we're in many ways every bit the hierarchy that our culture is. Here's the beautiful thing about the story that we have in our hands is that you keep reading and and, and you realize that in this humble place, Israel found God again because Israel sought God. Israel listened to this letter. And I'm sure when it came to this part that we love for our graduations, but this is actually written to people who are who are in exile, whose lives are in despair. And it's in this that God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He knows. And what are the plans? To prosper you. Not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and you'll come and you'll pray to me and I'll listen to you and you'll, you'll seek me You'll seek me when you see. You'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And Israel did this. Israel humbled themselves under God's almighty hand. In God's time, God raised Israel up again and restored them to their greatness. He restored the identity that they once had as being God's people, his special people in God's special place. And even now it's this place and not promised land and that we are in partnership with God. The massive call in our lives is to partner with God, to be the city of God, his new Jerusalem to Babylon. Read Daniel. This is what the book is about. Maybe some of you are asking, okay, we'll flush this out a little further. Like, what do you mean the city of God? Like, what does this look like? Um, what, what, what does this mean for us? Like, how, how are we to be different than, than the world around us? And, well, the answer to that question is really from cover to cover in, your, in our Bibles. But if you want the cliff notes, um, you can just go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, because here Jesus, he, he, he spells it out. And, and, and I'll sum it up, the kind of city uh, that, that he's calling his disciples to be. Uh, we're, we're to be an alternate city. 
uh, to, to the city that we belong to and, and how we steward the things that God has entrusted to us, how we steward our resources, how we steward our money, how we steward our talents, uh, how we use our time, how we use our possessions. We're different. We're different in these things. Uh, we're, we're to be an alternate city in how we do relationship, um, that we do marriage and, and, and we do family, uh, not the world's way, we, we do it God's way. We live out our sexuality and our, our sex, sexual identity, not the world's way, but we do it God's way. And, and, and we steward uh, these amazing gifts of marriage and family and, and, and sexuality as gifts from the living God. And we steward them in a way that reflects God and serves our world. Jesus calls us to be an alternate city where the weak are gonna know that they can come and find strength, where the guilty can know that they can come and find forgiveness and acceptance, where the oppressed can know and come and find protection, where the homeless can experience home. Or to be an alternate city where where people from every tribe and every people group and, and, and every culture uh, can, can come together and, and form a brotherhood where, where our ethnic and cultural differences are actually esteemed and valued and where we can live as one big family and treat each other as family. Where to be a place an alternate city where people can come and encounter the living God and, and where they can find him and where they can know him and where both religious and irreligious people are taught their desperate need for God and his saving gospel. And bottom line, we are a alternate city that doesn't operate the way Babylon operates, which is your life for me but we operate by the principle, my life for you. And I think that this stuff is radical. And I think it means some pretty significant things for our church. Number one, it means that as a church, we are not here for ourselves. That, that we are not here to just take from the, the city or, or use the city for our advancement or to exploit it for our own selfish ends. It means that we're not here in the city for, for just our tribe to, to take from the city to benefit our tribe. Listen, if, if, we, if we're here in Grand Rapids for these reasons, uh, we will be converted into Babel so fast and all that God has called us to be and, and who we are in him will be annihilated, gone. We're not here to build a great church, we're not. We as a church are here for Grand Rapids. We are here to seek the shalom, shalom of this city. And we are here listening to this word to be distinct and different and set apart from the world around us as a community and to move that distinctiveness all the way in, to be people of shalom, people who know the king of shalom. And in so doing, we will be Shalom to people who are in chaos. And some of you are like, who does this? I'll tell you who did it. The first Christians. I've just spent a lot of my last couple of years just 
uh, diving into uh, that period of history, the Greco-Roman history and the early church. Right now I'm reading a book by Tom Holland called Dominion, and Holland is uh, one of the foremost uh, scholars on Greco-Roman history. Uh, I do not believe he's even a Christian, but what he lays out in the book Dominion that I'm reading right now is he is, is laying out just uh, Rome's violence, use of slaves, um, its practice of infanticide, its exploitation of women and children. And he says it's more depraved than anything that we even know today. But then he says, but Christianity showed up and literally turned Rome and its values and its lifestyle on its head. And Rome is a culture that literally uh, uh, made domination its chief virtue. They despised the feeble, the poor, the sick, and the disabled. That's, that's Rome. In uh, Christianity, they come in and they glorify the weak. They glorify the downtrodden, the untouchable. Or listen to this quote from Rodney Stark's book, who's also dealing with the same topic, but as a Christian. Uh, he says, in Christian homes, whole families adopted a style of life modeled on that of the apostles. Now listen, he says homes, not churches. Homes. Homes caught this. They got the vision of this. And he says, some devoted themselves to missionary works, others to charitable deeds among the outcasts of Roman society, the lepers, vagabonds, prostitutes, the homeless, and the destitute. And then he says, in a few short centuries, they transformed the Roman Empire, this great Babylon, and think about how they did it. They didn't do it by seeking power or trying to take over or putting all the right people in office. No, they got power. They had power. But the power they had was by giving up power. They gave up their lives. Moment by moment, day by day, my life for your life. It changed the world. And I just want to end with this. Where do we get the power and the passion? Where do we get the freedom to live this way? Where we're actually even free of Babel, where we don't have to make a name for ourselves anymore. We're not just uh, indulging ourselves in all the seduction of Babel and having to climb the ladder and make it to the top and hoard all the stuff that we have where we become free to actually give, free to lay down our lives. I just want us to know, like, this is not do-goodism. This is not something that, that we can do just because we're so good or this isn't even just a new ethic or, or a new... Uh, Virtue that, that we embrace, that we are now going to perform somehow, we actually need a power to come into our life. And I believe the only way we get this power to come into our life is when we can start to see who we are and what Jesus did for us. That we can truly see ourselves as the outcast and the leper, the spiritual lepers, the spiritual vagabonds, prostitutes, that I'm spiritually homeless, I'm spiritually destitute apart from Christ. And I know that. No one has to tell me that. But then in that, when I see literally what Christ did for me, 
how he, he left his heavenly city. He left it all. He gave it up. He became the ultimate exile. He, he immersed himself into Babel. He went into the belly of Babel and he took upon himself all my Babel and all of your Babel so that he could give us his peace, his perfect peace. So we could have peace with God. We could belong to his new Jerusalem. See, when I allow that to sink into my heart, all that Christ did for me to bring me into his eternal city, that's when all of this is no longer, oh, I have to do this, oh, we gotta do this, we probably should do this. It's not an I have to. It's I get to. I want to. Let me end with the words of Jesus. Let's pray these words. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God, we will never, ever be a light to a dark world because we're so good. But when the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ shines in our hearts, Jesus, I just pray that you, you would shine in our hearts and that as a people, we would be a people who have been forgiven much so we could love much. And God, that we would love your city and that we would love you, but that we would love Babylon and the people and that we'd pray for the shalom, shalom and live into that as you lived into our chaos. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.